Hey up guests, welcome back. I'm your host Simon Ward and this is the High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast where I can promise you, you'll never hear any adverts and you will always hear a Yorkshire accent. We chat with guests about peak performance, fitness, health, nutrition, recovery, longevity, relationships and happiness because it doesn't matter whether you want to finish your first triathlon set a PB in X-Trace, or just keep turning up until you're in your 70s. Each of these elements has real significance. In a recent podcast, you might recall that we talked about how to make yourself more aero, and that's definitely one way you can get faster. Another way is by focusing on threshold power. Not the maximum figure that everyone likes talking about, but maximum sustainable power. What you can hold for a long duration like a half or a full Ironman. This week's guest is Jacques DeVore, a cyclist and fitness trainer who wrote the book Maximum Overload for Cyclists, a way of building strength in the gym that can then be directly applied out on your bike. I read Jacques' book several years ago and I've been wanting to ask him questions about this topic for some time, so I hope you find it as useful as I did. By the way, you can get access to a lot more information if you're on my mailing list. I typically email my group around three times a week with tips and hints on a whole range of topics that I've already mentioned. If you'd like to join, you can find a link in the show notes or you can email Beth at the Triathlon Coach. And I also have a free gift for anybody who signs up. Okay, let's crack on and hear what Jack's got to say. Hey, welcome to the show, Jacques DeVore. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, uh, Simon. I'm excited about uh, the next hour of us chatting about uh, stuff that I love. Well, me too, Jack. I started out as a strength coach and, uh, you know, combining that with being a triathlete and a triathlon coach, um, I feel like this is a subject I'm passionate about personally and professionally. And, you know, um, one of the reasons that we're chatting today is because uh, a few years ago, I picked up your book, which we're going to talk about a bit more, um, Maximum Overload for Cyclists. And I was inquisitive about this uh at the time, what what was a different approach to strength training for me? Um, and obviously, I'm as a triathlon coach, I was also inquisitive as to about how we could adapt this so that uh, triathletes could get the benefit. But before we get onto the book, let's let's talk about your journey to this point. So you're a strength coach, but you were a cyclist as well. So you've com- you like me, you've combined those two, haven't you? Yeah, I mean, uh, my fitness started. I'm old enough to remember when. You know, gyms were few and far between commercial yeah. gyms and uh, buddies of mine would have one guy would have a squat rack in his garage. Another guy would have a set of dumbbells. Another person had a bench press and we would kind of make the rounds to get a full workout <laughs> from garage to garage. And, uh, and it was really kind of nice. And as you know, you know, spending a lot of time in a gym, there's a lot of great memories and relationships and people that you remember and funny stuff. And at the time, it was mainly men, you know, young mm-hmm. young men at this time when I was a young man and I started lifting. So I started lifting because I was a wrestler in high school and uh, and I was always this really skinny, lightweight guy. You know, I wrestled 98 pounds in high school and in college wow. I wrestled 118 pounds. So I always felt very comfortable in a weight room. And then I had a lot of knee injury in uh, college, and I had the old school knee surgery for meniscus tear, which was probably worse than the injury itself. And so I took to cycling as a way for rehab. And so as I got older, 
you know, I started, uh, what was funny is I was always a very competitive athlete. I also played lacrosse and I did a lot of martial arts and, but I loved, uh, I was going to ask when, when you started out then, um, Jacques, did you follow traditional bodybuilding methods? I mean, I, I used to pick up muscle and fitness and it, the Joe weed, the Joe weeder yeah. stuff. And, um, yeah, it's funny you say that because and, we used to find, you know, uh, in the trash can in the alleys near our neighborhood where people would throw away old old uh, issues of muscle and fitness. And, you know, because we were broke, we had no money. And so we would read those like crazy. And, and here in the States, what's interesting is uh, Olympic lifting didn't come no. to the U.S. until about the 80s. Uh, so in the 70s and even in the early 80s, uh, colleges and universities weren't doing Olympic lifting. Almost all of the weightlifting and the methodology for weightlifting was either powerlifting and or bodybuilding, mm. but nothing really for power, which is what athletes really need. Well, of course, back then Arnold was big, wasn't he? You know, he was in his uh, he was in his ascendancy then, so he had a lot of. Uh, I mean, if if social media had been around, then he'd have had a huge Instagram following, wouldn't he, Arnold? About as oh, big yeah. as his about as big as his biceps, and then you've got his little mate Franco, who yep. who, came, who came from a powerlifting background, didn't he? And yeah. um, you know, they that, that that story, whether it's mythical or not, about how he bust his shoulder by carrying that fridge in the strongman competition and all all that sort of stuff. And of course, you used to get this these magazines in the States, we used to get them two or three months later in the UK. <laughs> and uh, exactly. pretty similarly, you know, you, you could go to WH Smith's, which was our main um, high street news agent at the time. And you'd have right. to look around and some of the, some of the bigger ones would stock muscle and fitness. And so I'd get these and I'd take it to school. And, and one of my friends was a, um, a weightlifting. He was a weightlifting champion, a, a junior British weightlifting champion. And so he taught us all how to, uh, power clean and squat properly and that was the only reason we were allowed in the school gym was because he was our like he was our supervisor and mentor at, at 16 right. but we used to have this little club and I, I found a photograph the other day you know you were talking about a band of brothers and shared memories somebody sent me a photograph of when we were all 16 yeah in the gym, you know and we're there with our vests on thinking that we got the muscles and actually we, <laughs> we, we look pretty skinny still <laughs> I train a lot of young uh athletes today and it's fun to see them at that stage in their life yeah. where they kind of like, you know, uh, sneak a peek at themselves in the mirror to see how their chest looks. Exactly. But I mean, you know, it's a wonderful time to be in a gym for young guys. Uh, I got a funny side uh, story with Franco. Uh, so we were at a little different location about a mile away when we first opened this gym in L.A., and I'm walking down the street and I see this little short guy and I go, I think that's Franco Colombo. <laughs> and uh, I go, Franco? He goes, yeah. And he's got the thick Italian accent still and everything else like this. But he was a chiropractor by okay. practice. Yeah. And his office was right down the street from my gym. So I would go down and see him. And I don't know if you know that Franco uh, died about a year ago I uh, in a drowning in Sardinia. Wow, You know, uh, so he must have had some kind of an episode, I think, in while he was in the water mm -hmm. and then uh, drowned and died, which was really unfortunate because he was such a character and such a great guy. And I'm talking about strong. I mean, mm -hmm. really, he was a power lifter originally and then went into bodybuilding. So, yeah, all of the U.S. weightlifting was really developed on the foundation of bodybuilding and, and a lot of those myths and beliefs 
of how to lift mm. are still ingrained in a lot of people. And they yeah. haven't really evolved to say, how do I train like an athlete? Well, I, you know, as I say, I coach triathletes. And when I ask them what sort of strength program they, they've got, they say, oh, yeah, I go to the gym. I see a personal trainer and I ask, okay, well, you know, before I, before I, stick my oar in here Let, let's have a look at what you're doing and it's nearly always right. well bench press three sets of 10 to failure um bicep curls three sets of 10 to failure yep. you know yep. um lap raises uh front raises rear yep. delt raises you know all of these exercises i'm like okay you're doing a lot of shoulder work there <laughs> yeah um and it's and usually it, a split chest yeah. and back on one day oh, yeah you know, uh, legs abs every day and so they, you know, arms and, you know, biceps and triceps on another day, because that's mm. a bodybuilding split. Mm. That's really what it is. So all of those types of breakdowns, when you see them, they come from the history of bodybuilding. Yeah. And I think also, you know, that, that, and that's great. If you're an advanced bodybuilder and you need to create that extra stimulus by hammering the shoulders with four different exercises from all different angles. But for the, for the average person, they could get just as good out, out of um, doing some conventional shoulder press once a week, couldn't they? And, right. and, and some press-ups, they don't need to go to that length, but they've they've seen all these fancy split routines. And of course, as we all know, if it looks more complex, it's obviously going to be better for you. Yeah. Well, the thing that is interesting is uh, my background for weightlifting is very diverse. And, uh, you know, I've gone to a lot of certifications and uh, heard a lot of other strength coaches and I've lectured. And I always hear most of the guys will thank a mentor. They'll say, I want to thank my mentors who helped mm -hmm. me. Uh, well, I had no mentors, which was interesting. And I actually think an advantage to how I see the world of weightlifting, because a lot of uh, strength coaches learned a particular way. This is how we train football players. This is how we train swimmers. This is how we train this. And this is the system what they have. And the problem is, if you ask them, why are you doing something? They'll say, well, because that's how you do it for swimmers. For me, it was more, why am I doing something? Mm -hmm. And then I would play Dr. Frankenstein on myself. So a lot of people here in the strength and conditioning community will poo-poo uh, on bodybuilding. And I said, wait a minute, there's a lot to be learned. Number one, these guys really understand diet and how to put on hypertrophy. And if you have a young athlete that's trying to put size on, you better pay attention to how bodybuilders are doing it because they are the best at doing it because that's what they're trying to do. Uh, so I think that there is more research coming out about you know when and where to isolate a muscle. And in many cases, when I'm developing a workout for someone and I can see that they don't have the capability to do a really high level complex lift, I'll start with some isolated movements to try to build some quad strength, to try to build some hip strength, to try to build these things uh, in a more isolated fashion, because then they get some confidence. It helps to build. And then I go to the complex lifts uh, and it just makes them so much better. So, and then they progress so much quicker. Well, and I guess also if you've got somebody who's rehabbing, you know, you talked about having had a knee operation. If you're rehabbing, then there's probably some specific um, yes, isolating muscle exercises you need to do as well there to assist with the rehabilitation because you're not going to go straight back into a back squat if you've just had knee surgery, are you? No, but when you say rehab uh, and you look at some of your cycling clients or triathlete clients, mm. you're rehabbing them. 
because they've done so little weightlifting mm. and they're so imbalanced in terms of their musculature because they've been doing a, a cyclic exercise for yeah. so long that a lot of their overall work needs to be at such a low level of intensity that you could consider it a rehabilitation exercise in some instances. Mm. So you, you got into cycling because of your, your knee injuries and to, to um, maybe balance out your training a bit. Did, did cycling become a bigger part of your sporting life then? Yes. I mean, uh, I, I started late at about 34 years old and I raced for almost 20 years. Uh, and from I started on the mountain bike because it was just fun. You felt like a kid again, you know, bombing mm-hmm. down a hill and there's mm-hmm. nothing more exciting than jumping over stuff. And I mean, it really takes you back in time. So, I mean, I just kind of took to it and go, wow, this is great. And then I had a bunch of buddies who were going up to Big Bear, which is a local ski mountain here. Yeah. And they were saying, hey, listen, we're going up to this race. Do you want to go? I go, sure. Why not? I'll give it a go. And I told myself that if I placed in the 50 percent top half of the group, I would start training and try to take it seriously. Because I was a basically a weightlifter who did 45 minutes of cardio two or three times a week on a Versa climber, which I still use a lot. And that was my, I was fit, but I wasn't cycling fit. And you know the difference. And most people mm-hmm. that are cyclists know the difference because you'll get a friend that'll go, well, hey, just give me a couple of weeks and I'll come out and train with you and I'll be able to keep up. And you're just going, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because they have no idea. You know, no. you, you told me earlier about this big ride you're going to be doing and people just have no understanding of what that takes mm-hmm. to do, you know, eight hours in the saddle, 10 hours in a saddle, you know, grinding out, you know, 10,000 feet of climbing, 15,000, 20,000 feet of climbing. It's a whole nother movie. So uh, a lot of the laymen think about cycling of when they were a kid mm-hmm. riding their bikes around the neighborhood. So obviously you've got cycling and the longer the distances, the more that carrying muscle becomes a bit of a disadvantage. Sure. Um, but equally, uh, a certain amount of muscle strength and, and sort of supportive strength around the joints is an advantage as well, particularly for, you know, well, for all endurance athletes, I think, although right. as we've uh, touched on there and maybe we'll talk about it in a bit more depth, I, I still think that message is yet to get through to a lot of endurance athletes about the benefits sure. of strength training because they are scared about putting on a gram of muscle. Exactly. And, you know, there's a, there's a compromise to be had. So as you were building up your cycling mileage and getting into competing, um, did you start backing off on the strength training because you realized that you were at a disadvantage or, or did you keep it up and find a, a sort of sweet I kept spot? It where up. They could- uh, I kept it up. Uh, and, uh, and as I learned more about cycling, because here's the thing that a lot of, you know, you said that most cyclists are afraid of adding weight. They are. Uh, and for a good reason, because it's a power to weight sport. Mm. So, you know, everyone's always looking at kilograms, you know, wattage per kilogram of weight. And, uh, you know, what's the gold standard now is six to, uh, they said, you know, Pajakar uh, was somewhere around six to seven watts per kilogram of weight. I mean, it's amazing, you know, what these guys are putting out in power. But what I tell athletes when I start to train them in the weight room and they're cyclists or triathlons, I go, uh, triathletes, I said, listen, you got to look at the percentage increase in weight relative to the percentage increase in power. Mm -hmm. So if you add a pound and a half or two pounds of body weight, but your power to weight goes up by, and that's only, let's say, 
2% of your total body weight, but your power to, uh, to body weight goes up by 10, then that's an advantage to adding the weight. So mm-hmm. you want to look at the weight relative to the increase in power that you get. And in many cases, people hyper-focus on body weight, and then they'll see some guy that's bigger than them just blowing them off the mountain because they can produce a higher percentage of power to weight. Because what's important is power to weight, not just absolute power. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing, of course, is you touched on that long ride that I'm doing. I mean, there probably won't be many people who are riding that long. But even over two or three hours, it's not necessarily your absolute functional threshold or your absolute power to weight that's important, is it? It's it's having the robustness around your framework to maintain good riding posture so you can put out that average percentage for longer so you're not fading in the latter half and i think that's that's where i see a lot of um, recreational riders um you know on the, on say a long sportive that we might do they're quite powerful in the first 40 50% of it but then you see them fading back cuz they're slouching on the bike they aren't able to keep the tempo going uphill and right. so, you know, they might have an FTP of 350, but they're not using much of it because their body's letting them down. Yeah, exactly. And the basis of the book was, and I'll ask a, a cyclist, I'll go, and I'll ask every athlete, no matter what the sport is, because I apply the same principles. I said, if you could be as powerful uh, as you are in the first half of the race, in the last half, how much more would you win? Mm. Uh And it's always, oh, my God, so much more. So what it is, it's not, as you said, just absolute power. It's the highest percentage of your absolute power that you can hold the longest. That's what wins bike races. And what you said earlier about durability, when I've done long ultra endurance races, all of a sudden your triceps start to ache. Yeah. Your neck starts to ache your lower back starts to be the limiter. It's no longer your legs. And like you said, the ability to produce high wattage out of your legs, you can't do it because your back is so fatigued that you can't push anymore because the back is the limiter. So these things for anyone who's doing ultra endurance are things that need to be shored up and the weight room's a great place to do it. Well, and also the thing, you know, Jack, is that when you've got a sore back, that's what you focus on, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You start, you start, your mind starts thinking, oh, my back's sore. So you've, you're focusing on that. And then, and then you're not concentrating on the actual riding. So it's an interesting eye-opener for people once they've done a few months of strength training and they come back and they say, do you know what? The biggest thing for me, I can't tell you whether I was any faster, but my back didn't hurt and I feel great today. Well, that's, that's a massive breakthrough because... Huge. I yeah. agree with you 100%. That, because, and, and it also makes the sport much more fun. Well, that's what I was going to say is there's nothing worse or there's nothing better for taking your enjoyment away than just feeling uncomfortable in the second half of a ride. Is there really? Because all all you're waiting for then is for it to be over rather than having fun and and enjoying the countryside and the weather. Yeah, 100%. You're surviving. There's a big difference between just hanging on and and grinding out miles versus saying, okay, I'm, I'm able to dictate my own pace and pace it the way I'd like to pace it and feel good about doing it. So you're 100% correct. Yeah, I, I like to, to use the phrase, are you thriving versus surviving? Exactly. That's um, a very good way of looking at it. You know, and uh, thriving. So we're doing this because it's fun. So if half of it isn't fun, then we need to find a way to turn that around. Yep. Um, so let's just dive in a bit more on why strength training is important for endurance athletes. You've, t- you've talked about the durability. For me, that's 
that's not just over the term of the race, that's over the length of a season because right. there's a cumulative effect of fatigue, isn't there? And uh, right. races that are coming up. And then there's the, you know, the things that you and I are uh, sort of perhaps more interested in now is that durability as we get older about still being able to do stuff as we get into our late fifties and sixties, where, whereas a lot of people are just going, you know, cycling's not for me anymore. I'm going to walk the dog. Exactly. Uh, I think that, uh, if you're if you look at cycling as it, you know when you get into your 40s 50s 60s you know you're not a pro anymore you're riding for health you're also but you but you have a competitive fire and you still want to do well uh and there's nothing wrong i mean i have a lot of guys who are in their 40s and 50s and have won national championships and they're they're grinding and training just as hard as a pro and they look at it exactly the same way and i love them for it but the what you lose as you get older is you lose the ability to have high speed muscle contraction. And you're yeah. also losing a percentage of muscle mass, especially uh, in a uh, cyclic sport like cycling, when there's no eccentric low swimming, all of these, in many cases, a lot of the older athletes, if they go get a bone density scan, they're not going to look good. They're going to have a lot. And that's why so many of these mm. older senior masters erasers, if they crash, they break a lot of bones mm -hmm. because they're losing bone density because you're losing so much calcium through your breath from these long duration efforts. And there's no loading. You're sitting on a seat. So there's no real spinal loading. There's no real uh, the load. The leg loading is not eccentric. It's just concentric because you're pushing. So most of the load that you get from weightlifting is eccentric, and that's what's going to load the bones, you know, and you don't mm -hmm. get that. So out even outside of the performance improvements, health improvements are dramatic by getting back in the weight room. In some ways, Jack, I think as, certainly as coaches, that, that, that for me is more important because we are dealing with humans first before we're dealing with athletes, aren't we? And, right. um, you know, uh, it doesn't. It doesn't matter if uh, if you can win a race on a bike if you're then going to fall over in the garden and break your wrist. Yeah. Um, and th there's this story about you know I suppose it's probably the same in a lot of cycling federations where the the athletes you know they want them to be low on body fat because of that power to weight thing you talked about. Um, they want them to save their legs so they tell them not to walk up the stairs when they're in the hotel. You know they get the lift. But of course sure. that takes away all the bone loading. And 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 this is in young athletes we're talking about in their in their teens and twenties. So if, if, if we get in this um, lack of bone density, then that that's not a painting, a very good picture for when they get into their thirties or forties. hundred percent, hundred percent. So, I mean, the thing that you, and because you're competitive and you want to win the other problem that you have, I, I thought about a great title for a book would be life gets in the way. <laughs> Life gets in the way, especially as you get into your 30s, 40s, 50s. You have a career, you have kids, you have relationships, all of these things. And so weightlifting is a fantastic way because cycling and triathlon takes so much time. Yeah. So if there's a way to maintain or improve performance with less total time, uh, you, it's a winner. And so weightlifting gives you uh, an opportunity to say, okay, I don't have to put in quite as many miles uh, as I used to do. I can get a good 20 to 30 minute workout in the gym with some good heavy weight, bang it out quickly, what I call microdosing, just small doses, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe, you know, you were talking about when you see a workout 
I can literally do a 10 minute deadlift workout. Yeah. And it's too. so good for my cycling, yep. you know? Uh, so these kinds of workouts are possible when you're just saying, I'm just lifting not for aesthetics, but only for function and for cycling and or triathletes. So you would pick those particular exercise types and then focus on those. And you can do them throughout the week where you get, you know, you'll get an hour and a half worth of total time, but you'll break it up in 10 minutes at a time and you don't even know you did it. It doesn't even get in your way. Well, I, I you know, I think we talked about this before we set up the podcast a few weeks ago, this micro dosing thing. The biggest objection I hear from endurance athletes as to why they don't go, well, there's, there's a few, isn't there? Firstly, they don't know what they should be doing. Secondly, right. Um, if they didn't know what they're doing, they don't know if they're doing it right. But but, the, but by far the biggest dominating um, objection is that um, they don't have time because of the cycling that they do. But of course, as what we're saying is you, you, if you combine a little bit of regular strength training um, with 90% of your normal cycling volume, actually, when you add those two together, the result is going to be better than if you only cycled. 100%. And that's they have to get over that hump. Because here's the problem with most uh, endurance athletes, unless they trust you as a coach and they believe that you're going to uh, put them on the right path with the weightlifting, they're always suspect because they're sore as hell when they first start. It mm. compromises their writing uh, and they go, I'm not going to do this. I feel like crap. My, you know, my I'm climbing with my buddies. I'm getting dropped because my legs are so beat up. Mm. So mm -hmm. it has to be uh, uh, the expectation of what's going to transpire has to be communicated to the athlete. So the first thing I tell them is I tell them it's going to suck for about a month. I go, it's not going to be fun. You're going to be slower on the bike. You're going to feel crappy sometimes on the bike. But once you get over that first, you know, month of weightlifting, all of a sudden you're going to go, holy crap, I'm climbing in a bigger gear. I, I feel better. I don't feel my lower back doesn't fatigue so fast when I'm doing long climbs. And all of a sudden, you're going to break out of that and you're going to get ahead of it. And so I think that there has to be an understanding because a lot of athletes that are endurance athletes and haven't lifted, first of all, go in with this negative attitude towards I'm not lifting weights. I'm a cyclist. I'm a swimmer. I'm this. I'm that. I'm not going to. Why, why would I be lifting weights? That's not my sport. Well, and I tell coaches that I, I talk to over the years, I go, Listen, I'm not trying to turn you into a weightlifter at all. All I'm trying to do is weightlift to enhance your cycling or your swimming or your running. And all of those will be improved dramatically if we, I get you in the weight room for a short amount of time, a couple of times a week. But if we got them started, say, in the off season, you know, let's say the season ends end of September. And then right. you start maybe the cyclocross season or you have a month off. If we got them started in that end of season when they're not doing much cycling, we can get over that hump of the soreness, can't we, before they start yes, again? So, the, so there is a, you definitely you, can. You definitely but what they will do, I guarantee you, I, I just because I know cyclists, <laughs> yeah, nobody I know likes, what, to, be, I nobody know what you're likes gonna, to be slower. No, and so I know what, what you're going to say is, now. Yeah. Even in the off season, they go out on one of their long rides with their buddies and they just did a big weight session. Their legs are frigging toast. And the slowest guy that used to, they used to just dominate somehow is keeping up with them and it drives them crazy because we all have big egos in the sport. <laughs> I th so I thought I knew you're going to say, I thought you were going to tell me, yeah, well, I don't need to do this. But then 
a couple of weeks before the season starts, they realise that they're no fitter and then they want to start it then. And of course, then it does get in the way of the training. Um, yes. Well, you have to manage that in season. I do yeah. muscle firing workouts where it's usually just one day a week, very short, low volume. And it's put usually before a tempo ride. So they're not worried about, you know, putting a bunch of output. What you don't want to do when you're uh, designing these programs and weightlifting is you don't want to have them before hard efforts. You mm. don't want them before a minute and a half interval or a three-minute VO2 max interval where you're going to be doing some hill repeats or something else like that. You have to be careful about the type of workout that you do. But now, in some instances, you can enhance those workouts because you get an activation of the muscle prior to a big output on the bike. And mm -hmm. so you can actually improve output and wattage on interval sessions. And that's the final leg that a lot of people don't realize, because most of the research on weightlifting and endurance work shows an improvement after the fact. But here's, as you know, as a coach, let's just say that I've been able to add a lot of force production and my wattage goes up by 10%. Let's just say watts go from I uh, used to do an interval at 400 watts and now I'm doing it 440 watts. Well, what happens is then every one of your interval sessions has greater value. So as you get down the road into the season, all of your training, your tempo rides are at a 10% higher output, your intervals are at, which means you're getting bigger overloads on the bike. So most of the research never looks beyond that and says, how does the improvement in force production and power improvement mm -hmm. from the weight room impact your performance long-term on the bike in terms of your cardiovascular output? Mm. Let's, let's just go back a bit and talk about this soreness thing. I can't remember his name. He's the Iraqi cage fighting coach who was on Joe Rogan, and he was talking about whether, it's, whether you need to get sore Actually, it's possible right. to do strength training and you don't need to get sore. And if you do need to get sore, then it's in, then it's getting in the way of your um, your sport-specific training. Right. And, you know, we, we you talked about the micro-dosing. You talked right. about if, if you do a set of deadlifts and let's say your normal deadlift, let's just pick a, something out that a cyclist might think, oh, I can probably manage that. You can deadlift five reps with 200 pounds. So right. you, you do a micro-dosing set. You do five reps every two minutes. You're going to do five sets of them. That's going to take 10 minutes. Right. You do one warm up set, then you do you do two sets with your 200, then you do one set with 220. Right. right? And then you go back to your 200 for your final set. And then the next time you do it, you do um you maybe do six reps at 220. So you've just nudged it on a little bit more. You're still getting exactly. stronger, but it's yep. not such a huge overload that it's going to create that soreness that's going to really impact your training. Now there's no there's no reason why if you take a long-term approach, you can't you can't um yeah now if you're you, uh, training like that is neophyte if you're a complete novice to the weight room early on you will have some soreness yeah no, no I, I agreed yeah but what the big mistake that and you know here you know you have a lot of rating services on workouts and you'll see them rated on what's the sweat level how sore i was and everyone's so proud because they're sore and i'm going you're a moron <laughs> I go, you don't need to be that sore. And then the other thing, when they say, did I sweat? And I go, well, that means that a 400 pound deadlift is worthless for three reps because you didn't break a sweat. Uh, so these kinds of, uh, you know, measurements are mm. wrong. What you want to do is what you just said, are we progressing? And at what rate? 
And you have to understand that there's two sides to this coin. One, because uh, if you, I did a lecture to a bunch of cyclists one time and I asked them to, uh, how many of them had power meters? I go, how many of you guys? There was about 30 people in the audience and probably 25 people raised their hands. They were all competitive cyclists. And I asked them, I go, how's the wattage calculated? I go, how, how is power? What's the equation? How does it come up with the number? Crickets. Nobody knew. And so I explained to them the physics, force times distance divided by time or force times velocity. And I said, when you're on your bike, you can see it firsthand. So if you're trying to climb with someone who's a much better climber than you, you're looking for a gear. You're saying, well, I'll try to spin up it. That means you've increased the velocity to increase power. And you go, well, that's not working. I'm still getting dropped. <laughs> and you go, okay, I'll try to put a bigger gear on and get out of the saddle. Now you're going to the force production side of the equation and mm -hmm. you're trying to produce more force. So when you're looking at your weightlifting, you have to look at it the same way. You have to say on one side of the equation, I need to increase force production. But there's a point where you're going to have diminishing returns because you need hypertrophy mm -hmm. in order to get more force production. That means you're going to add muscle. So typically in weightlifting for cyclists and endurance athletes, we're trying to get a neuromuscular improvement in recruitment of muscle fiber. So that way there's no added weight, but there's greater, greater force production being produced. So that's the first question. And then the second question is the velocity side of the coin. How can we improve the speed of movement to improve power? So and then the last question that I tell people is, what's the X factor? If you look at that German, whatever his name is, the Hulk, the guy who's the track cyclist with the quads, yeah. the reason why track cyclists have such monster quads is because they have to produce an absolute power for a short amount of time that's monstrous. So they need that hypertrophy. They couldn't climb for crap but they don't care. They're on a flat surface. All they're trying to do is put out as much absolute power as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. So what happens is as the distance becomes greater, the leg starts to shrink. So when you look at a guy like Chris Froome, he's got these skinny little legs because he's producing power over a long period in time and he wants the highest average power output. Mm -hmm. So you have to then take into account that X factor. The X factor is how many repetitions do you need to produce or for how long do you have to produce the power? So when I'm training athletes, the first thing I analyze is what's their ability to produce force? And then in some instances, it may be better to lean them down and get smaller because they're too big to be a climber. And you'll get guys, you'll find a guy that, you know, decides to become a triathlon athlete and he's a six foot four, you know, 185 pound, 200 pound guy that was a football player, you know, mm. or a rugby player in your part of the world, you know, when he was a young man, but he loves riding the bike and swimming and he's making this transition because all his buddies are doing it. Well, in those cases, you're going to lean a guy like that down. You're going to say, we don't need this much size. If we want to be competitive, we got to kind of see how we can shrink that overall body. And there's going to be a sweet spot where you're going to be in between those two. But the last part of the equation is what most people don't look at. They look at absolute power. And that means how high can I jump one to six times? But what's more important for a bike racer or an endurance athlete is what percentage of that jump height can I hold? 
if I was jumping for a thousand times. Right. Right. Okay. You see that? Yeah. So let let me let me go back a bit. Um, I remember talking with Shane Sutton, who was the uh, head coach at Great Britain Cycling, and he worked with a lot of those track sprinters, you know, that we know sure. that have won Olympic medals, Chris Hoy and Jason Kenny. Um, never, never mind what they say about his his coaching and the fact that he's he's sort of like you know his name's a, a, a mud now. But you know, when I spoke to Shane, I, I wasn't aware of that, and as far as I knew, he was just this rough Australian guy that had a a, a very um a, a very inquisitive mind about cycle coaching. But but at the time, he said, "Look, we have all of our cyclists in the gym. We know they need to be stronger." We know that, that often, you know, the, the the best sprinters are, are, are the most powerful ones, but we're not sure yet what the direct correlation is between your ability to squat and your ability to ride a bike fast. Right. But we but we, but we don't want them not to do it either because we think that we think they need to do it. And of course, if you look at Mark Cavendish, he was rejected a few times by British Cycling because he was told he wasn't powerful enough. Well, that, he's obviously he's not that one for six, hasn't he? Many times. Yeah. Um, but also, there's this other thing I wanted to explain about the kinetic chain of exercises. Like you've got a squat, and then you can do a squat jump, and then you've got to turn that into a sports-specific activity, haven't you? Yes. So you get somebody to do some back squats, uh, rate of force development, but not a great deal of velocity. Um, then you get them to do some loaded squat jumps, maybe, or some jumps where you've got holding some dumbbells. You do an eccentric, yep. a lowering yep. with the weight, and then you drop the weight and spring out of that, or you yep. jump onto a box. Yep. And then you put them on the bike and you get them to do a bike sprint. So you're transferring that strength from. Yeah, uh, that's called a potentiation, post-activation potentiation. You're potentiating that, the muscle yeah. so that you're going to get a better bike sprint. And and if you and if you went and watched some of the track sprinters, you know, the runners, you'd see them doing that. And you often see them doing some um, very high um, knee tucks, don't you, just before they go into the blocks to just. Exactly. S- s- you're trying to mu- activate the muscle so that yeah. it fires at a high speed when they're sprinting. Okay, so I guess that's the next question for our for our novices to this who are listening is, okay, so if I'm going to start doing squats and deadlifts, how does that translate into me riding better up a hill? You know, right. because because cycling's a cyclical movement and you're pressing down with one leg onto a pedal while the other leg's recovering. Um, a squat's a two-legged movement, you know. Um, do I do single leg squats? Do I do Bulgarians uh, single leg rear, rear foot elevated squats? Do I do lunges? Right. Um, do I do leg press, for instance? Do I do leg extensions? What do I right. do, and how do I transfer that into being a better cyclist? Because that's perhaps the um, the thing we need to explain in order to get them in the gym. Right. Uh, I, I mean, the first thing, uh, and it, it's you, you've used all the right words. Uh, you know, <laughs> okay. uh, and no, the, the the correlation. A lot of people, you know, mix up. Uh, there's a thing called a correlation coefficient mm. and a correlation coefficient is how much does one variable inf- impact the outcome of another variable. So for example, hundred meter running sprints, if you look at hundred meter sprinters, the fastest guys are your best vertical jumpers. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're not your best squatters. So the guy who can squat the most may not be the fastest guy on the track. Mm. And however, squats can improve your vertical jump. Yep. So what you're looking at is as a strength coach, you're trying to design the program with that correlation in mind, which is the question that you're asking. How does weightlifting and what movements are going to have the highest level of the correlation coefficient? If it was one-to-one, then it would mean that if I did squats and I improved my squats by 10%, my 
wattage on the bike would go up by 10%, but it's not a one-to-one movement. Mm -hmm. So what it is, is you're going to see a percentage improvement. Uh, Probably if you just improve your squats to a point where you don't gain any weight, you're probably going to see a 5%, 6 8 10% improvement in your wattage for a short amount of time on the bike because you have the metabolic component that has to kick in at some point in time. I talked a little bit about that earlier. Once you get that newfound force production and velocity, then the metabolic component starts to catch up as you train more with that newfound power. Mm-hmm. Uh then the next question is how much of the force production work, which is the squats, the deadlifts, the Bulgarian split squats, all of those are strength exercises. When I talked about the physics of power, that's the force production. Mm -hmm. Well, all you want to do is get the athlete as an athlete, you just want to get up to where you're topping that off. So what I tell people is, what I'm going to do is I'm going to look at lower back strength. I'm going to look at the ability to, to carry a load on your back. And in most cases with cyclists, I squat less and deadlift more, Mm -hmm. mainly because they don't have the infrastructure to do heavy squats. Mm -hmm. Now, I'll do Bulgarian split squats because that takes less because they're on a split squat with only one leg at a time. And so it's much easier for them to hold weight. You don't need to carry as much weight because typically their upper bodies are weaker. So if you're saying that you're, you want someone that is an endurance athlete, they typically have really strong lower bodies and much less in the upper body, unless they're a really, they come from a swimming background, Mm -hmm. but even then you want to be careful. So then once you top off that strength and each season, it gets better. But if I was taking someone for the first time and I know that I'm getting them up to a certain level, I go, I'm not going to add much more. So then I go to maintenance on that. And that usually takes about six to eight weeks of weightlifting in the off season. And you're going to be at 90% of the uh, highest level of strength you're going to get out of them in that off season. You're not going to get a lot more because unless you put on a lot of weight and you have them in the weight room all the time. And then the next question is, okay, now how much of the dumbbell weighted jumps up to the box do I do? How much am I going to improve my absolute power output? Uh, So that's the next part. Now, what I do is while I'm doing the strength, I'm incorporating that power component all the way along. So, but it's a small percentage early on. The biggest percentage of training time is on force production and a small percentage of the time on the power, the velocity side. And then as I get them closer to their max lifting on the strength side, I'm reducing the amount of time spent on strength and I'm increasing the amount of time on power. Yeah, exactly. And then once I get that absolute power to the level that I think it's within close to 10% of what they're going to do by the end of the season, then I'm doing the maximum sustainable power, which is in the book. And that's when I do those walking lunges and those types of exercises where what I'm doing is small exposure. We talked a little bit about it earlier, but small exposures to power with a small rest. And then again, so we're trying to hold power for as long as possible. Okay. So while you're doing all this, what emphasis are you putting on those stabilizing muscles? Because somebody's ability to generate power through the legs is going to be governed somewhat by the stabilization of the, the glutes, uh, right. by, the, by the strength of the core. I, I, um, I've seen quite a bit of stuff where they've, they've looked at um, overhead press uh, I know right. Pavel, Pavel talks about this a lot and, and the fact that your overhead press is often governed by the strength of your core. 
Sure. And, and it's not it's not to do with the strength of your delts or your triceps. It's whether right. your core can support the weight in order for you to have a firm base to lift from. And that goes back yeah. to Paul Check's whole thing about you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. Exactly. So what I do is I do an evaluation of every athlete before I start training them. And I'm looking at how weak are these things. In most cases, you can shore them up pretty quickly with most people by focusing on those. Some of the mobility issues that they may have just getting into a squatted position. Do they have butt wink where their piriformises are super tight and they can't squat well because they're going to get spine flexion at the low end of the range? So these kinds of questions that I'm asking myself, do they have shoulder mobility? Do I have Mm -hmm. to use a safety bar instead of a regular traditional bar for a squat because their shoulders are so tight? And with a lot of cyclists, you get a lot of tight shoulders because they're always bent over like this. So I, I shore those up. And then I'm progressing those compound lifts, which incorporate all of those along the way. So the workout would have some of those mobility issues on the early part within the workout itself. Early on in the workout, I'm working on some of those mobility exercises and stability exercises. And then I may, in the second half of the workout, do the heavier lifting once I feel like I've done some of that to get those uh, positions working better. Okay, that so that's that set the uh, that set the scene. Let's let's talk about your maximum overload principles then. So that that is like a um, that is like a, a part of a micro dosing type thing, isn't it? It's, it's it definitely is. not a, a traditional three three times ten to failure type no. of workout. And that was what really interested me in this is how your total workload, the total you know total number of pounds you can lift, right. reps times weight per rep, and and all of that. Um, right. per workout is actually greater if you take this uh, i don't know whether i could call it a more cautious approach because it's not in the end but you take a slightly different approach to lifting right so well, let, let me you, tell you where it comes how, from explain that yeah explain how that yeah. came about first. okay yeah. so the technical term for this kind of training if you look at the literature is called a cluster set mm-hmm. and you'll see it used a lot in strength and i'll give you what the example is so let's just say that i'm sitting here and on my chair and i do a bicep curl And I can do maximum 40 pounds, five reps seated bicep curl, okay? Mm -hmm. Five in a row. So I can do five reps in a row and then I run out of steam, okay? Yep. So a cluster set would be me sitting here doing two reps with the 40-pound weight, resting for about, in in the literature, it's 40 seconds. But because we're endurance athletes, I shorten the time. So let's just say that I rested 20 seconds. And I did another two reps and then I rest another 20 seconds and I do another two reps and then I rest another 20 seconds and I do another two reps. Now, if I did them all in a row, I was only able to get five. I've doubled the workload by having that the the cluster set where I did two reps. So the overload was increased dramatically. Mm. So if you do the math and you say, okay, five times 40 pounds reps is a 200 pound total workload. But if I can get 10 times that, so I can do 10 reps in that period in time, what happens? All of a sudden, I'm at 400 400 pounds of total weight lifted. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's the goal of all of this is to do that. So what happens is when you're doing a cluster set for power, there's a lot less literature. 
So that's the, so if I was looking at a vertical jump, okay, so let's use vertical jump as an example. And let's say if you did six vertical jumps in a row, you could hit 20 inches. If you reached up, you'd hit 20 inches every single time. But if you do more, you start dropping off. So you start getting down to 18 inches. And if you keep going more and you do 10 jumps in a row, you're down to about 15 inches by the time you finish, okay? So you've dropped off 50%, you know, or actually 20% of the total jump height, okay? So you've lost five inches. So you're no longer producing maximum power. You're doing an endurance workout now. So if you kept jumping in a row. Well, it also seems to me, because when when we've got a strength set, um, you've got control over the the movement, haven't you? But when you start doing power, it, it's it's a much more dynamic movement. If you're taking off, you've got to land. So if you're trying to do a lot of takeoffs, um, and you're getting fatigued, there's also a chance that your landing's not going to be as good, and that's no when we're going and that's when we're going to start getting injuries. So there's a, there's a mu- start having there's, injuries. There's much more caution needed to be applied to power type movements than there is perhaps exactly. to traditional strength. Hundred yeah? percent. Yeah. And that's why, and so uh, so what I'm trying to do is to overload the work capacity in power, just like we was talking with the dumbbell example in strength. So how do we do that for a cyclist? And how, because everything is power to weight. So yep. what I do, if the athlete was coming into my gym for the first time, and I was doing the evaluation for someone who's an endurance athlete, I'd say, okay, let's do some walking lunges, go to the end of the hall, and come to me and walk 10 steps. So they drop down, they explode up, drop down, explode up. And they're going, that's really easy. I'm just using my body weight. Okay, good. All right. So let's add a couple of 10 pound dumbbells. So I add a couple of 10 pounders in each hand. They go to the end of the hall. They do 10 steps. No problem. They're dropping in, exploding out, dropping in. The speed is still very high. And I tell every client, always err to the side of more speed and less grunting. So when you think of a power exercise, it's always hoof, hoof, like a jump. When you think of a strict strength exercise, it's, yeah, it's and you're kind of grunting to move the weight. It's a gr- it's a so grind, you want to be in that whoosh type of mode. Yep. And so, so I said, okay, well, 10 pounds is too light. Let's go to 15. Now, when I hit it, when I have them do take the walk down the aisle with t- uh, 10 steps and 15 pounds, all of a sudden I see they're slowing some. Okay, they're not getting quite the explosion out of the hole on the low end of the range. So then I go to 20 pounds, and there's the optimum power. They're still keeping the speed up, but they're working hard, and that's their absolute power. Now, in the book, I call that the APS, absolute power, APO, absolute power output. Okay, so that's the measurement of the absolute power. All right, so that is my five steps on each leg because we're doing 10 steps total. So they're doing five on each leg with 20 pounds. Okay. Just, just let me jump, let me just jump in there, Jack. So, so obviously there's a reasonable amount of skill required in order to be able to do um, a a walking lunge for, um, so they'd obviously need to, um, if somebody's listening to this and they haven't really got a lot of time in the gym, you'd probably suggest they were doing this supervised, wouldn't you? And, and yes. learning, learning and, to do these And there's these a lot exercises. of alternatives. You, yeah. And now, so you can apply the same principle to a step up on a box. So yep. this would be the easier version. You put one foot, you leave it on a plyo box, let's say an 18 inch plyo box. Mm-hmm. You put a couple of dumbbells in your hand and you do a high speed step up. You start with just your body weight and you say, I step up and that's a lower risk uh, effort, but it still works really well because it's very similar to a cycling movement. Uh-huh. So it's fantastic for that. 
So you can use a step up. You can use, uh, all, and depending on what movement pattern you're trying to mirror, if you're a swimmer and you want to apply this same principle to uh, a pulling motion, you can do it with pulling motions as well. But uh, so you're 100% correct. The early on, what I tell people is take a wider step so they have more stability in the lunge. Exactly. Okay. Yep. So they take a wider step and it gives them a lot more stability and they'll start to pattern that movement after a couple of times of doing it. So just, just to clarify that, if you were walking down a running track with that line in the center, you'd maybe have your feet to start with maybe four or five inches out aside from the line. And as you got more skillful at it, then you can bring your feet in closer, but you definitely wouldn't ever want to be one foot in front of the other down the line because that's no. that's not natural anyway, is it? No, and what I would suggest is even a wider stance so you could put like a foot outside of each line, two feet. So you're almost stepping at an angle. So you got a really wide stance and you can really control the lunge. You're still mm -hmm. going to get the load on the legs as long as you just don't go to a 45 degree angle. But mm -hmm. you may be able to be 20 degrees from the midline uh, and you'll, you'll, you'll have a lot of stability when you do the lunge then. So, I mean, and lunges have a really good crossover for running as well, don't they? And particularly for hill running. So, oh, yeah. uh, you know, um, triathletes are listening to this. We think, well, actually running lunges seems like a great exercise then there, but, um, I'm still a little puzzled about the swimming exercises. Can you, can you, yeah, you can do what, the same what, thing. Um, what we like might we be using a, there? We have a versa pulley, which is a little different. But you can do it if you can find something you can do a straight lat pull with. You could do it one arm or two arm. And and if you and with a cable machine, because it's not that heavy, depending on if it's a double pulley, I have a, a free motion double pulley that's really smooth at a high speed. Mm -hmm. So I would do the same thing. I would first test. At what speed am I getting the uh, the biggest amount of load with the speed that I want? And then what I would do is I would say, okay, pull right arm or both arms at the same time in a position that's very similar to what I would do in, in a pool. And I would pull, uh, you know, right arm, left arm, rest for, you know, uh, we're going to talk a little bit more, but I would test first, okay, 10 pulls on each side. What's the most amount of weight that I can have on that cable? where they can still pull with speed. So you're trying to estimate that power output. Now we have iso inertial here, so, uh, which is a Versa pulley, which is, and uh, I have a number of clients that I coach from a distance that bought the Versa pulley. It's a great piece of equipment for this type of thing because uh, if you get fatigued, the weight will actually diminish because you're just pulling less. Mm -hmm. uh, so so the, let me go back to the client. So I tested the client. And I, I figured out that they have 20 pounds, okay, that they're maxing out on that walking lunge, okay? Are we back to where we, uh, you're with me right now? Yep, go ahead. Okay, so they did 10 steps and they did them great with, uh, now in the book, I say 12 steps. 12 steps, the first two steps kind of give you a rhythm. So you can do 10 to 12. Uh, okay, so then he comes, the client comes back four or five days, three days, and the next week, and we're going to do the first real workout. Now we're going to do a long duration, sustainable, what I call maximum sustainable power. Uh -huh. So what I'm trying to do is keep the highest percentage of his max power the longest. I know right now that his max power is two 20-pound dumbbells for 10 steps because he kept great speed. So I've already measured that. I know what it is. So this time he comes into the gym and I go, okay, go to the end of the room and let's do 10 steps at max power. So he comes down. I know he can do it because we did it a week ago. 
And he comes down, he's keeping the speed up. I'm coaching him. Okay, drop in, drive out, drop in, drive out. He comes to the end of the 10 steps. I go, now we're going to rest for 20 seconds. So he rests for 20 seconds. He turns around and he goes back, but he's doing it again with the same speed. So he's still maintaining that highest percentage of his max power. It hasn't become an endurance exercise yet because he's still keeping the speed in his legs. And then I go, okay, you still look good. And I go, give yourself 20 second rest on the other end. Let's do it again. He comes back again. He still looks good. 20 second rest. He goes back again. Still looks good. On the fifth one, he falls off a cliff. He starts slowing down dramatically. I can see that he's, you know, slowing. I go, I go, all right, that's it. We stop right there. Because what would happen is if I continued to have him go, he's producing power at a suboptimum output. So the body's not going to make an adaptation because he's no longer overloading for long duration power. He's just doing endurance and beating himself up. Now, what happens is quickly the athlete is able to start adding more time. So let's say I did four and a half passes the first time. And then he comes back and he makes it all the way to five. We're still staying with the 20 pound dumbbells. He's keeping the speed up. The next time he comes back a week later, he's doing 12 passes. So what's happening is the body is making an adaptation Mm -hmm. to holding power at a high percentage level for a very long period in time. That's the whole principle behind the book is to hold the highest percentage of absolute power. All of the stuff we talked about earlier in this podcast, the force production, everything else leads to this moment. Right. That's where we're that's what makes them better cyclists, better swimmers, better runners. It's not that well, I'm going to get them to squat more, it's that I'm going to get them to produce power for a long period in time at a really high level because then they get on the bike and all of a sudden they're climbing that hill and they're going holy smokes, my power has gone up and my ability to sustain power, I can go forever like this. So they're not, they're definitely not going to come in and just start doing this straight away. There's got to be a preparatory period, haven't they, when they're building the body up, particularly if you've not been in the gym and you've not done a great deal of strength training, then you're probably going to find that anything you do additionally is going to lead to some sort of benefits. You you might not be cycling up hills faster, but you might just find that you, your back's not aching as soon in the ride or you're enjoying more of it. And that's still, that that might not be an over, you know, um, a visible performance benefit in terms of watts or time on the bike, but it's certainly right. a performance benefit in terms of enjoying it. But over time, you will see, maybe you recover quicker. And so you can do, you, you, you know, you can, you can do those heavy workouts with, with right. shorter bike intervals now, maybe. let me just uh let me tell uh the walking lunges are going to make you hugely sore mm, so yeah. always be judicious with them because the problem is what people don't realize it's the ballistic drop and the breaking there's yes. a huge eccentric load mm. so the muscle gets a lot of micro tears so the first couple of times of doing it you're going to be miserable afterwards and you're going to get on the bike and you're not going to feel so good. So be very careful. Start out slow. Get a couple of workouts under your belt with a lighter weight mm. or less time. And then bring it up little by little so you're just not beating yourself up. I, I would think also for runners particularly, and, and when they're doing, um, you know, if you're training for a marathon or if you're doing um, half or full Ironman distance, 
one of the things that we all notice towards the end is just how sore the legs get. And that's just the repeated eccentric contractions, you know, on top of all the cycling. So if we're building the resilience in the leg muscles through doing these lunges, we're probably also going to be managing our leg fatigue during a race. Yeah. Well, here's the, now, now let me see, let me explain to you how this translates into being on the bike. So it doesn't, let's just say your absolute uh, FTP is uh, 250 watts, let's say. Mm -hmm. You climb, you can hold it for 20 minutes, you do a long climb, your your average wattage is 250. So, uh, so you're riding with a bunch of people and in the first climb of the race, you're able to keep up because your 250 watts is adequate. Mm. And then you go to the next climb. Well, you're not able to produce 250 because you're getting fatigued. So maybe you produce, you know, 230. You're still hanging on, but barely. And then the next climb, the third climb of the race, all of a sudden you're down to 220. People are starting to leave you. You can't keep up because that little skinny guy that's at the front is still is lighter than you and produce. And in the early uh, uh, climb, work less. So what the sustainable maximum sustainable power does for you is it allows you in the first climb to hold your 250 with less effort. And then the second climb, you're still able to hold the 230 with less effort. And then the third climb where you normally get dropped, you're still at 230 to 250 and you're holding on to that out. So then you're able to stay with the group. And then the fourth climb, you're able to hang on and finish with the lead group. Mm. It doesn't make you necessarily, it will improve your absolute power. But what it really does is allows you to hold a higher percentage. So you're Everyone that really understands cycling knows that the sport is a conservation sport. Yeah. It's conservation of energy. It's mm. not output of energy that wins races. It's conservation of energy that wins races. That's why when you men mentioned Cavendish before, he's a great sprinter because his aerodynamic position is so yeah. incredible that his wattage, even though it may be lower on an absolute basis, mm. He's he's fighting less wind. Yeah. So he's conserving energy because of his positioning. So whatever way works is what works. In his case, it's an aerodynamic advantage in a sprint. Well, and of course, you, you mentioned Pogachar at the uh, right at the beginning there. Yeah. Um, often in the Grand Tours, the best riders, you know, the the um the GC contenders and the team leaders they're not necessarily that much more powerful early on in the race, but they tend to recover better. And they're the ones who have more to give in those final big climbs in the final week, aren't they? Um, exactly. You know, they're not, I think Pogacar's coach, um, uh, Inigo San Milan's talked about his ability to, uh, he's producing less lactic acid yep. and, and he's clearing that lactic acid quickly. And so it's having less corrosive effect on his body as the accumulation of fatigue. Um, and and if up. you look at the team tactics, they're trying to make him conserve even more energy. Yeah. So all the flats he's sitting in, everything else he's sitting in, he's sitting in, even the pacing going up the hills, he's not at the front. His teammates at the front, he's taking all the wind, he's working harder because in principle, what you're doing by using the maximum sustainable power training is you're adding domestiques to your legs that's what you're really doing. Well, and, and you know, this is the smart way of doing any endurance racing, whether it's triathlon, whether it's ultra distance running is being more efficient. So strength training makes you more efficient. It does. Mobility and the, and, and 
running efficiently, running tall instead of sitting into your hips, running with your, with good posture so that you're nice and balanced and rather than having to shift weight constantly because you're off balance, um, whether you're burning fat or burning glycogen, all those things that are making you more efficient are then saving you. Even if it's 1% of energy, that's the 1% that you're not going to notice until those last few exactly. minutes of the race. And, and that's really what we're talking about here is strength training is going to make us more efficient and it's going to make us more effective in the latter stages of the event or the latter stages of the season. It's relative power is what it is. It's your ability to hold a relative higher power output in the latter stages of the race compared mm. to your competition. Yeah. And with a triathlete, which you do a lot of triathlete training, is it's average power. Yeah. Over the can you hold a higher average power over a seven or eight hour, you know, Iron Man? Are you able to hold higher averages? That's the key. It's not absolute power. It's the ability to hold a higher percentage of that absolute power the longest. So what I do when I'm evaluating an athlete as well, I'll ask them, I'll look at what their sprint power output is. I'll go, if you were to do a sprint, what's the most you've ever seen in a sprint? Well, someone will say 900, 1,000 watts. So then if I look at their sprint capability at 1,000 watts and their FTP is 300, that means they're holding 30% of their maximum power for an FTP. Mm. So then I can either say, well, can I increase the 1,000 watts a lot? Probably not, but some. So if I can bring the 1,000 watts up to 1,100 watts in a sprint, then uh, if all else is equal, they'll go up by to 330 on their mm. FTP. Mm. And then, But really where you mainly make the improvement is efficiency at the FTP level. So mm. I can hold a higher percentage so in, instead of 30%, can I hold 35? Can I hold 32% of my max power? Yeah. That's where you make the gains. And, and that's that it does frustrate me quite a lot with, with uh long duration cyclists and, and triathletes, is that they they want to talk about how high their VO2 max is or high how how big their FTP is. But but if you're in an Ironman, you're probably holding 70%, 75% if you're a pro. Um, can you hold that? for a five-hour ride and then run efficiently off it because if you can do it for a five-hour ride but then you're going to have to walk the whole marathon then that's not really effective anyway you'd be better off no. holding 65 percent and running well so you know you've got you've got to work out what that energy efficiency looks like over the whole day haven't you not just that first climb or the second one you're exactly right. It's all about oxygen utilization and efficiency. It's not about maximum delivery of oxygen. It's how much of that VO2 max can you hold the longest. That's who wins the race, not the person with the highest VO2 max. Yep. And if you want to keep going until you're the same age as me and Jack, then that's who wins the race as well. It being efficient exactly. with your body usage. So listen, Jack, I know you've got to run because you've got another appointment. Thanks yep. so much for being on the show. It's been great. You've answered a lot of questions for me that I've had since I read your book. So that's ticked off a few boxes for me. Hopefully we've both ticked off a bigger box in encouraging a few more endurance athletes um, to get into the gym. Um, we're going to put links to you, uh, to your book, to your website, and I I'll, I'll be in touch so you can give me links to a whole load of other stuff if you've got Fantastic. them. Fantastic. And yeah, so. I'd love to do it again. If you if you get uh, interested in going deeper into uh, diving into some of the areas, I'm happy to do it. It's been wonderful. Oh, I, I love it, Jack. I'm definitely going to be taking you up on that one. But for now, okay. thanks, mate. Thank you, Thank you so care. much. Okay, bye-bye bye now. now. Bye. Bye now. To make sure you don't miss an episode in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast, and subscribe.
Don't forget that I have a free gift for anyone who signs up to the mailing list. And you can find that link in the show notes or just email Beth at thetriathloncoach.com. So thank you again to Jacques for being a guest on this week's podcast. As usual, there are links to all of today's discussion topics in the show notes below. So that's all for now. Have a great week. I'll see you on the next episode.